Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you today from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Happy to have this opportunity to interview the gifted writer and former creative writing instructor, Dawn Newton, who will be speaking to us today from East Lansing, Michigan. Dawn attended Michigan State University and subsequently earned a fellowship to attend the Johns Hopkins University, where she received her Masters of Arts in Fiction. She is married with three grown children. Dawn is the author of two books, one fiction and one nonfiction. Her novel, titled Remnants of Summer, is a coming-of-age story of how collective grief and personal guilt threaten the individuals who make up a family. In November of 2012, shortly after Dawn was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, she learned that her cancer had the vulnerable EGFR mutation. In her nonfiction book, titled Winded, and a memoir in four stages, Dawn writes about living life to the fullest after being diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. She has been treated with the drug Tarceva for close to eight years, and she writes unflinchingly, but with great tenderness about both her cancer fight and her struggle with depression. This is no doubt going to be a special and touching interview. So I'm so into interviewing and happy to be interviewing Dawn today. Dawn, a really warm, heartfelt welcome to Grief and Rebirth podcast. Thank you so much for for having me on the podcast, Irene, and I'm really looking forward to our talk. Oh, that's going to be absolutely wonderful. And I think, and I truly believe that it's going to help a lot of people who are listening to us who go through all kinds of traumas and problems in their lives and you have some really wonderful ways that you approach um, your what's happened to you and all that we can all learn from. So well, thank you. you're welcome. So my first question is, please share your early years with us and tell us about your relationships with your siblings and your parents. Well, thank you. Um, the, um, the book Remnants, my uh, fiction book, uh, actually captures some of uh, the flavor of my my upbringing, uh, childhood, whatever. I grew up in southeastern Detroit in a, in a county, Oakland County, um, where there were a lot of lakes. And actually, there are a lot of lakes throughout Michigan. Uh, it's the Great Lake State, but there are a lot of small lakes. And one of the things that was interesting about the area that I grew up is that um, the you could you could live in a kind of um, working class neighborhood, but still have permission to um, to go to the beach and 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 
Um, when I think of my childhood, I think of that as one of the, the key features. I, uh, we would go to the beach and, and swim. Uh, I had an older sister and a younger sister, no boys. Um, my father worked for GM. My mom did uh, various jobs throughout time. She was a secretary, so she did different uh, jobs. And we, we just sort of had a, a really mellow life when, when I was younger. And um, uh, we had a, a working class ethic. So we all took a babysitting class in, in middle school and, and babysat a lot. That was usually our first job. And then we all worked at a lumber store. We passed down uh, the job. Um, so my older sister worked it for a few years, then I worked it, then my younger sister worked it. And um, I think I, I really wasn't aware of, of external, um, external details and events. And I really was not very aware of class because I loved the neighborhood I grew up in. We were really close to all of our neighbors. Um, even if there was somebody in the neighborhood that we didn't interact with. We knew who their names were. Um, so I think it, it was um, in my beginning adolescence that I started to see that there, there was a lot of dark in the world that I hadn't paid attention to before. Hmm. Uh, but at least you had a, a secure, loving early childhood, which is a blessing in itself. A it lot was. of people don't get that. It but was. Right, but at the end of the life, you say, at the end of his life, you say your dad was in a nursing home with MS and he came alive and became joyous in the shower. So you wanna tell us about your dad in that, in that period? Yes, um, my dad was uh, diagnosed with, with MS, um, multiple sclerosis, um, probably around the time I was in uh, late college, early graduate school. And at that time, my parents were divorced. Um, and uh, my sisters and I kind of took over uh, helping him out, although they had a good relationship. My parents did a good divorce relationship. Um, we didn't find out until the, the funeral that um, he, came, he came alive when he got in the shower. One of the aides told us that information. And one of the, one of the most heart-wrenching things that that happened for me when I would go to the, the nursing home to see him. I was living in Lansing, so I would sometimes drive down um, after work and see him and then go stay at my mother's house. Um, I went in one time and I was really teary and I said, Dad, I just don't understand why you're not present when I come and visit you, I know that the MS affects your brain, but I miss you so much and I wish I could talk to you. And he spoke very haltingly a lot of the time. And what he said to me is, you're my big girl now. And I, I just nearly fell apart at the, on the spot. Um, so later when I, when we saw the, the aides who, who came to the funeral, we said, when, when were you able to talk to him? Because they both talked about him being nice and funny. And I said, when, when were you able to see that? And they said, he always came alive when we gave him a shower. He loved having a shower and he would joke with us and 
he was there. He was there. It was just that I was often seeing him later in the evening and his faculties weren't always together. Yeah. Well, what a, what a blessing, at least that they had that view of him and you got to hear that. Wow. Yes. Wow. Yeah. But your parents also died 36 days apart. So, and it was during your pregnancy with your second child. Talk about traumatic. Uh, so how did this experience change you? And, and it also raised your awareness that a person may need to work through old grief experiences while confronting his or own, her own mortality. So would you like to speak to us about that, Dawn? Yes. Wow, 36 days apart. Was your mom's death very sudden? Um, yes, my, my mother's death was, was pretty sudden. She had, um, she'd had a heart attack at work and um, they, she was in a coma for a while. We, we went to the hospital. My, my sisters and I went to the hospital and we were taking shifts and recording information that the doctors told us. And after two days, she, she woke up and she had all of her faculties um, and they thought that that was really miraculous that she hadn't lost any brain, uh, function. Um, but while they were trying to, to mend her, she had to be on a respirator and, um, they, they couldn't figure out what was going wrong. Uh, and they wanted to send her to do a heart catheterization, but because they didn't know what was going on, they, um, they thought it might be best if she went to uh, a nursing home facility first. Um, and so they sent her to a nursing home facility. We were, we were a little nervous about that. Um, and I had, I'd gone to see her a few days before um, St. Patrick's day. And I was supposed to come back on the weekend with my daughter. And that Friday night before I was supposed to, to go back, um, they called and said she'd, She'd had a massive heart attack. Um, they sent her to the hospital. And then we spent a week sort of um, waiting for her to, to die. But, but what had happened while she was in the hospital the first time is that my dad had a, a heart attack at, at his nursing home and they brought him in and he died just down the hallway from her. Wow, wow, wow. So how did this raise your awareness that a person might need to work through old grief experiences while confronting his or her own mortality? Well, I think because I was a really uh, sensitive, maybe overly sensitive as a kid. I mean, I was known as, as one of the most sensitive ones in the family. Um, I took it really hard. My, my sisters took it really hard too, but I, I, I dwelled on it a lot. And I knew that I wasn't going to make it. Uh, I felt I wasn't going to make it in life without, without my mom. So I felt like I had to figure things out because I'd relied on her. And here so you much. were pregnant and here you were pregnant yourself. Yes, I was pregnant and I, I wanted my mom, but, but I didn't have her. So That's I, bad. Wow. you know, I just, I started therapy and um, processed the deaths and processed my depression and, I continue to process to this day. It, I'm one of those people who doesn't ever think that the journey is over. It's it's ongoing. Well, sister, I'm with you because I'm the same way. Every time I've ever had an issue in my life, I find out who can help me. I know I am not 
I am not, I can help a lot of other people, but when it comes to me, I can't see that, that clearly. And I always find that's part of why I started this podcast, that there are people who can help you. And I'm so glad that you did that. I think that's so very, very wise. I, I, I go for the, I do the same thing. Where, where can I go? Who can help me through this? Um, now, where it comes to you, though, you've never been a smoker. So how did you find out that you had stage four lung cancer? And what does it mean to have the vulnerable EGFR mutation? Well, I think um, one of the most interesting things about <laughs> lung cancer is that the symptoms don't always appear right away. So the danger of lung cancer is that you can um, develop the symptoms and, and you can progress fairly far in terms of stages without knowing. And of course, I think we went through years where we just assumed you were only going to get cancer if you smoked. Um, and, and my mother was a smoker. And um, I think that contributed to her death, but it was a death of, of um, heart disease. For me, I, um, I had some weird sensations in my body and my chest. I'd been a, an asthmatic kid, so I always paid attention to my lungs. And there was weird flip-flopping in my chest. And um, I went to the hospital and it turned out there was lots and lots of fluid in there. And they did all kinds of tests. I had to have a procedure done to, to empty my lungs. Um, and then later the biopsy came back saying that I had uh, lung cancer. And then we found out that it was stage four lung cancer that had metastasized to my bones. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. Oh, what a shock. Talk about something to grieve about. And, and what does it mean that you have this vulnerable EGFR mutation? The, um, the cancer is actually, it's, it's weird to describe, but the cancer itself is what has the mutation. And all of these lung cancers that they're finding out there, and you, you often see television commercials about various uh, drugs, they've figured out these various mutations and they label them things like EGFR or ALK, ALK, or there's one called CRAS, K-R-A-S, and the mutations respond to certain um, to certain medicines better than others. And the one that I have, EGFR, um, exon 19 is the subtype. That one, that cancer mutation happens to respond very well to this drug. And even though it doesn't often respond with that much extra time, I'm one of the outliers who happen to benefit for longer. But just like it's interesting, now we have COVID, so it's easier to explain, just like COVID has variants, that's what happens with the cancers. The mutations will only accept treatment before so long before they mutate again. So mine has mutated again. I'm on another drug as of August of this year. And um, We'll see how long I last on this new drug that's fighting um, a new mutation. Well, you're a wonderful, beautiful human being. And I sure hope that you've got a long ways to go because you can help so many people with your book and what you've written. So tell us about your book and what was your primary motivation for writing Winded? 
which is what an appropriate title. Well, um, when did I wrote, um, I, I think I started journaling right after uh, I was diagnosed. I was diagnosed during one semester, uh, October, October, 2012. The next semester, I only had one class. So I took the next semester off from teaching and I just let the medicine work on me. I assumed that I was, was dying. And um, I, I had two different motivations. One had to do with, I'd been a writer my, my whole book and uh, my whole life, I'm sorry. Um, I'd been a writer my whole life and I'd written parts of lots of books, um, but they'd been fiction. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna write about this. I can record what's happening to me and maybe it will be of some use. And ironically, that in part came from uh, an old um, Natalie Wood's last movie where um, there's a scene in the movie uh, where they're, they're working with this new technology, this thing that works with your brain and can record things. And there's a scientist in the lab who's a workaholic, she's smoking cigarettes and she starts to have a, um, uh, a heart attack and she's determined that she's gonna record it. Um, because she's a scientist and above all else, she wants to record it. So that came to me when I was um, trying to figure out what I was going to focus on in this semester off besides healing. So that's how that's how it happened. So in a way, Natalie Wood inspired your book. Yes, she did. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty terrific. Um, it winded. You openly talk about your battle with cancer living with the unpleasant side effects of the drug that is keeping you alive and your struggle with depression while you cope with challenges, setbacks, and you also experience joy. Tell us about the lessons this has taught you. There must be many. Um, I think for me, they're all sort of woven together. Um, I, as a, as a person who suffers from depression, I've I've gotten on the, the the bandwagon of mindfulness because I find that it pulls me out of this negative sort of self-talk that goes on in my brain. If I can pull myself out and do some breathing, or if I can pull myself out and and focus on a bird or whatever beauty I see outside or focus on a piece of music, if I can pull myself out of my head, I'm able to appreciate joy more. Um, and some of that involves going back and seeing in my brain, these flickers of my parents' faces um, and things that I did with them. Um, and that's, that's kind of the way that I pulled myself out. Now, dealing with the self-talk is hard because Lots of people have voices in their head, and I don't mean schizophrenic voices. I mean, uh, I mean, I don't have any uh, any education on that that I would feel um, comfortable sharing. But this negative voice that speaks to you and just harangues you and says mean things to you, and you know, why would you want to write a book about cancer? Who really cares? Um, you have to find a way to talk back to it. And um, that's one of the things I've worked at with, with my psychologist. And actually 
my my old psychologist uh, that I had when I was in the Virginia too, she she tried to help me move away from that script in my head that was so mean. So how do you do that? Because in the book, you call it the voice. So when the voice comes into your head, how do you tell it to shut up <laughs> or whatever? Um, sometimes I have to come up with things to say. Um, uh, my, my psychologist has encouraged me to do it uh, with an accent if I want to, or do it with uh, a voice and sort of make fun of the voice. So, so take on another persona to shout back or talk back. Um, um, sort of, sort of like diminishing the power. So yeah, I know, I know you want me to do 20,000 things at once, but I need to focus and go through my list. So go away right now. Don't talk to me. Just let me do my thing. And you keep on prattling in the background if you need to, but just know I'm not going to be listening to you. Wow. So think those kind of things. That's an interest. That's, that's a terrific, uh, uh, tip for people who, who, who struggle with these issues. I'm sure a lot of people have the, that negative self-talk in their heads. Um, when I really was fascinated by your story in the book about a student you had who had cancer and his name was Jeremy and he impacted you tremendously. Uh, and you learned a lot from knowing him. Would you like to share that with all of us? Yes, he was, um, he was, he was in, incredible and an incredible role model for me. Um, How old was he, he when you met him? He was 21 when I met him. And, and he died of cancer. How old was he? Um, he died, I think, at, I don't know if he was still 21, but he died the year oh. after I met oh, him. Oh, wow. Um, but he'd, he'd been diagnosed when he was 14. So mm -hmm. he'd lived with his cancer for um, seven seven and a half years. And the, the reason that uh, we connected was in part because I wanted to self-disclose the first day of class. And I said, I want you, I want to be transparent and I want you to know that I have cancer. This is going to be um, an experiment for me in terms of how I'm going to teach with the cancer. And I don't want to, um, I don't want to trigger anybody. It's a creative writing class. I don't, I want you to know, and if forever, for any reason, you need to just bow out of the class, feel free, uh, because it, it's, it can be an emotional subject. It can be triggering. Yep. And he stayed after class to tell me his story that first day. And um, we, we, we bonded after that. And, and he, his approach was a little different than mine. He'd lived longer with it and he'd, he dealt with so many surgeries and, and chemotherapy and he, he could be a little, um, he could be candid and a little cynical at times, but I was fine with that. And, you know, underneath it, he wanted to do, he wanted to earn his college degree and he was really smart and a good writer and um, we had, we had a good journey, but he, he died in the summer and um, it, it was a sad experience. 
uh, to learn about so it. young. Wow, wow, wow. How has the impact of living with your cancer diagnosis impacted your family and your relationship with yourself? Um, I think my family, um, they, they have a lot of struggles um, that now that they're older, they, um, they come out in a protectiveness, like uh, we have a group chat. And of course, the biggest thing on the group chat is who's getting vaccinated when they want to see me in the summer. Two of them live on the East Coast. Um, the other one lives just down the road um, at University of Michigan. But everybody wants to protect me, but, but they want to see me. I think in the beginning, it was hard for me to articulate to them the ways that I needed help. And they Did were- you even really know the ways you needed help? No, and I, I don't- and it's, such not, a, it's such a, it's such a, it's such a new- experience. And I'm not, I'm not a linear thinker either. So, so other people I know, in, including my older sister would be able to say, can you do this, this, and this for me? Whereas I tend to sort of sit there and go, maybe I'm thirsty. I'm not sure I'm thirsty, but, but maybe I'm thirsty. So I think it, it was a, a process. And at times I felt like I was hard at them, but hard on them. But at times I felt like I had to be honest with them and say, I, I, I don't think you're getting it. Um, now they get it. They're, you know, they, the, the two older ones are older and the youngest one is, um, uh, they just, they just know how to ask me, what do you need? Or do you need to sit down? Or should I go get you some water? Um, those kind of things. Right. Your two older ones are girls and the younger ones a boy. Actually, my uh, oldest is a girl, then the uh, middle one is a boy, and the youngest is a boy. And um, it must be hard. It's got to be hard on them. And, and, and what is your relationship with your own self-worth? Now that you've told off the voice and all of that, how are you doing? Well, that's the thing is that when I say that for me, the, the procedure is ongoing, it, it is ongoing. So so it's only been, um, I mean, to be honest, for, for your listeners, I, I will admit that I talk about in the book what it's like to have um, suicidal thoughts and, and just feel that you're not worthy. And, and that occurred before I was um, diagnosed with cancer. And so um, the ironic thing is that those thoughts for the last few years have been really um, not as much present. So whereas I suffered from depression and sometimes suicidal thoughts for many years, now it's mostly when it comes, it's depression and sadness. Um, but I don't have, um, I don't have the idea that, that I need to give up. Um, and I'm glad to hear that. That for me, that's for a huge accomplishment. Because yes, um, it, it wasn't always that way. I'm very curious. We talked about your kids. How's your husband dealt with all of this? This is a it's a tough thing to have a spouse who's going through this. Yes, he he has a tough time. His his best way of dealing with things is 
is often to compartmentalize. And he works very hard. Um, and he's now, since I've been diagnosed, had the bulk of um, the, the work life, the bulk of the, um, the money making. I've, I've actually tried it several times since I've been diagnosed to get uh, uh, a money paying position, but um, it's harder when you're older and I, um, I, I may be unfair, but I think it's harder when you're an older female. Um, and I'm at the point now where I have so many appointments um, and I get fatigued easily that it's, it's getting harder to, to look at that. So, um, so my husband sort of bounces back and forth between um, trying to be present and then we try and support him so he can do his job. And I think it's challenging for him because he's experienced the loss of a his mother and a brother in the last few years. And he's got his own grief journey that, that he needs to, to work through while he's working through an anticipatory grief journey right. about me. Right. Absolutely. I thought about him. What led your oncologist to tell you that he does not view you as terminal the way he views his other stage four patients as terminal? And how did that impact you when he also told you he wanted you to live your life and plan on living into the future? I think um, I'm a realist and um, he is a very, very hopeful oncologist. And the, the main distinction that sets me apart is that there, there are a few people, not a lot, but there are a few people who kind of skew the statistics. So generally you're supposed to have maybe, um, it used to be 18 months and then it became two years, um, two to three years, but I blew the statistics out of the water um, for, for my first drug. And he is extremely hopeful and before I met him, he'd written an article about the balance between hope and realism. And I read the article uh, before I ever met with him and he does tend to the hope. So sometimes I have to tell him, look, I I'm, I'm gonna add a little grain of salt here. I'm gonna keep positive, don't worry. I'm gonna stay positive. I'm gonna keep charging ahead as much as I can, but, um, I'm going to leave most of the hoping to you and I'm just going to live my life, put one foot in front of the other, make goals. And so I come up with goals, five-year plans, two-year plans. Um, and that's been very helpful. I can imagine. And you know what, it, to me, it's so fortunate <clears throat> that you have such a compassionate, positive thinking doctor. Because so many, you know, you go to a doctor's office and sometimes you want to, you think they're brilliant, but can we find a personality over here? Yes. <laughs> he, has, he has a very, he has a very charismatic, caring, um, big personality, very, very uh, empathetic and sympathetic. Yeah, that in a situation like you're going through, he sounds ideal. Um, how has dying with cancer 
helped you to live with hope. And I love that you've come to believe that instead of being a rube, you are a ruby. Tell us all about that. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, I, I have to credit my friend, Barb. Um, she had given me a, a ring once and um, had, uh, she gave it to me because I had talked about how I just felt like I, I was a country bumpkin a lot of the time. And I, in spite of my education, um, I felt like I, I, I just didn't know what the classy, smart, advanced people did. And I kept on repeating rube, rube. And so she, the next time she saw me, she gave me this ring and said, it's an old ring. I had it. I loved it. Um, I want you to wear it. It's, it's a ruby. You're a ruby. Oh, that's so. beautiful. That's beautiful. I would wear that ring every day to remind myself. And what do you what do you mean by your statement that one needs to be open to healing forces in the universe? I think um, I I can be a cynic. I can be a naysayer. Um, I can have the uh, those aspects to my personality, but I do believe in. Um, and I don't know what I call it, a love force. I mean, I, I'm technically Lutheran. I'm spiritual. I belong to the Christian denomination, but I believe if I were uh, born in a country where people were Jewish, I would be Jewish. If I were born in a country or a part of the country where people were Muslim, I'd be Muslim. So I believe in this life force and, uh, it's very much about love. And that's the, the part of your book that I really latched onto is, is this idea of, um, I don't know what I believe about heaven. I don't know what heaven is or, or even if there's a heaven, but what I do believe is we, we owe each other and ourselves that, we, we need to show love and um, I can be ornery and grumpy. And when I am, I hate myself. So I, I make mistakes, but I do believe that there's this love in the universe that we can tap into. And if we can tap into it, then um, I think it can empower us and and heal the, the dark side of us. So um, I don't want to believe that my, um, my progress, once I've been um, on drugs with cancer is the result of someone intervening on my half and healing me. Yet I do believe that things happen. We don't know why they happen. And it's a mixture of science and you know, positivity. They're, they're trying to encourage people to be positive. Um, sometimes I say, well, you know, work on positive tomorrow. If you need to be negative today, let yourself be negative for, for 10 minutes. Um, I try to be open to everything, but 
But I think because I'm open and I'm open-minded and I embrace both the hope and the gloom, I think that um, good things can happen. And they it doesn't are happening. Mean, You're here talking to me today. This, yeah. you know, the, they can happen. That's, you know, yes. uh, absolutely. Yes. I have to tell everyone who's listening to this interview, Winded is a wonderful book, especially if you're going through a lot of, you know, different things in your life, like a chronic illness or depression or cancer. And it's a wonderful book also to, to gift people. So I would like you to tell everyone how we get a hold of you, how they get a hold of your book. And uh, I think there'll be a lot of people interested in uh, checking you out, checking out your book there. So tell us all how to, how to do that. Well, thank you. Um, um, the book is available through my um, uh, publisher, which is Apprentice House Press. And um, you can go on their website, Apprentice House. I've, I've got a link for it, um, but I don't, I don't have it in front of me. But, um, but and if you tell them the word uh, summer, you can get a reduced rate of uh, 20% off of the book. Um, and, and So you can say the word summer and get a reduced rate off of winded? Um, well, um, that's a good question. I know that my publicist was offering it for Remnants, which is um, uh, my new book, a, a novel. Um, so I don't know, I, I think it might work, yes. But winded is also available at the press and it's available at uh, any fine bookstore would be able to order it. Okay. Is it also available on Amazon? It is. It is available That's on great. Amazon. And, and Barnes and Noble. And Barnes and Noble. Great. Thanks, yeah. Dawn. And of all people in the world, what is Dawn Newton's tip for finding joy in life? Um, I think it's, it's mostly about images. Uh, for me, I, I, I love images, even though I'm not a visual artist. Um, if I see something and I can memorialize it, like um, in the office that I'm sitting in now, which is my, my uh, daughter's old bedroom, I get to see lots of images, things from, from her life. She's got a bulletin board. There's a, a picture on the wall that I used to tell stories from. But outside, when I look outside some mornings, there are these two big birds. And I don't know what kind, big, wide, wide um, wingspans. And um, it's, um, it's just fun to see them soar. And I try to distract myself from, with those things. So if I'm uh, focusing on work, I try and stop and go, wow, look at that. You know, how about that? Or I listen to music and I just um, dance to it or, or I sing to it or I just marvel at the lyrics. Um, that's, that's my way of finding it. Sounds it. like you get right into a present moment and, yes. and you enjoy your present moment and you're mindful with it. Yes. That gives you joy. Okay. Well, Dawn, thank you so much from my heart for sharing your book and your story with us today in this really special thought-provoking interview about your book, Winded, a memoir in four stages that drills down into the essence of what it means to be human with its challenges, 
joys and setbacks, including a diagnosis of stage four lung cancer. This is a worthwhile read for anyone who's ever struggled with depression, cancer, or a chronic illness, and is also a worthwhile read for people close to that person. I have no doubt that anyone who reads Winded, a memoir in four stages, will agree with me that Dawn is most definitely a ruby. And here's a loving reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. As I like to say, to be continued, many blessings, and bye for now. Mm-hmm.